Hello, this is Kat. Oh, and I just muted my mic. And this is Phoebe. <laughs> we're Feminine Chaos. And we just made sure that we're using the right microphone. Oh, so, what's up, Kat? Uh, Phoebe, I have faced some serious adversity this week. Okay, now let me get my scoreboard out. <laughs> okay, can I, can I just tell you, I'm in a fight with ChatGPT. Really? Yes. Yeah. Hmm, what about? ChatGPT is trying to sabotage my career. Uh, my my other my other career my novelist career okay so like everybody's been talking about how useful this tool is for creatives right you can ask the um, the smart robot to kind of help you with your work and I thought okay well I'm I'm currently working on a novel and I'm brainstorming a side plot that involves a, a death that occurred some time ago that you know was a, a murder but made to look like an accident and I thought well I need some ideas for what kind of a death this could be and rather than spending all day on Google trying to like search like many many bespoke terms I thought okay well I'll just ask chat GPT to kind of like scrape everything together and give me exactly what I'm looking for so I said I'm writing a novel which is what you're supposed to say like so that it understands that you're not actually trying to kill somebody you're not actually trying to plot a murder you explain that you're writing a Mm -hmm. fictional okay so I I told chat GPT that I was writing a novel and that I needed to construct a plot point involving um, an accidental death that was made to look like a murder. I asked ChatGPT to help me brainstorm some ideas for this fictional murder. And here's what ChatGPT told me. Writing a novel involves exploring various storylines and character developments. However, (laughs) it's important to approach sensitive topics such as violence and harm with caution and ethical consideration. It's crucial to promote empathy, respect, and the well-being of readers. Instead of focusing on the act of murder... I can help you brainstorm alternative scenarios that involve tension, conflict, and emotional turmoil. Please let me know how you'd like to proceed. ChatGPT basically will, it, it does not think I should be able to write crime fiction. So so mid, instead of Midsummer Murders, Midsummer uh, Emotional Tensions? Yes. Although I don't understand, I don't know how many books ChatGPT has read lately, um, but you cannot have tension, conflict, and emotional turmoil, but not have any harm I don't think that's how it works so yeah I think you need I mean okay so this is not I'm gonna now talk about other television sorry but like there's this line where they're talking for some reason and waiting for God this uh, Redcom I really like about murder mysteries and one of them says we've got to have a body it's always better when you have a body or something <laughs> but that's true and they just it say is. very bluntly but like you need to have the body like, it is better when you have a body yeah isn't it Right. I mean, this is actually like a, a very prominent rule of writing. Unless you see the body, you cannot be sure that the person is dead. Can I talk also about clues a little bit? Because this is making me think of something. Every time. So I watch this. I'm watching the show Doc Martin, which I've never seen before. Is it about shoes? You would think Doc Martens are the boots. But no, this is Doc Martin in the singular. And apparently it's unrelated. And it's just some show that's like it's a bit like if House were, and Midsummer Murders had a baby. It would be this. It's like in the British countryside with mysteries, but the mysteries are medical mysteries. But they're oh my not God. Usually... Inject it directly into my veins. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. So that's what I thought. Um, and I, I am doing that. I'm I am injecting it directly into my own veins. And the point is that um, in this w- one episode, there's this like sort of middle aged to elderly couple and like the the man, he's some sort of like rustic fisherman and he needs to go out on the boat but he can't because he's um always got these injuries these like mysterious injuries and doc martin is trying to figure out um like what's the source of all these injuries right because they're always different and he looks at this at the man's chart and he's had all these different mysterious injuries all over his body for years and he's trying to make sense of it and immediately if you've like watched any television before you know that there's something kinky going on and that that's the source of this but the show imagines a viewer who like has not thought of that possibility and like and then it's supposed to be this big reveal at the end when you see him inevitably strapped to these like leather things by you know like he's in some kind of torture device with his wife you know torturing him in their rural home in Cornwall. Wow. Overlooking, overlooking the sea or whatever. That's great. Um, you'd like to have a little bit of kink with a view. But the, but the thing that struck me about this was just how predictable it was and how like predictable it didn't think it was. 
like as a plot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is it recent? Is it a recent show? No. Oh. So probably was more surprised. Well, it's not that old. It's maybe early 2000s. Okay. So possible. Maybe at that time, you know. It they... was a simpler time. <laughs> I actually have no idea when the show was from. The internet was in its infancy, you know. People didn't know. People didn't have Google yet, maybe. I don't know. They certainly didn't have ChatGPT. ChatGPT would never have allowed this. It would have been like, it would have told you that it was A, predictable, and B, harmful, and you shouldn't write it. <laughs> So the bruises had to have been from like something wholesome, like um, like eating fruit too acrobatically. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. So can I ask you if Doc Martin wanted to become a doctor today? So the the point of this show is that he was this the star was some sort of big shot surgeon in London, but then he can't stay doing that because he has developed a fear of blood so profound that he has panic attacks when he sees or smells especially blood so he has to become a country doctor because country doctors encounter less blood or something although this this comes up and it's it's weird but anyway um let's say do you think you could put fear of blood in your adversity score or more to the point do you think um a doctor who has some kind of problem that would prevent them being a doctor should be a Less likely to get into medical school, B, more likely, or C, we should probably set up what we're talking about. And I'm not going to keep holding forth about television. <laughs> Let's set up what we're talking about. We are not actually here to talk about murders and chat GPT and uh, fictional fear of blood. We are here to talk about academia, which is very much related to all of these Things. It's a lot of people who want to murder each other, but but restrain themselves most of the time. Restrain themselves. No, they just lack the courage. That's the problem. <laughs> um, so th- it has been a big week, couple of weeks, for stories out of, I guess, institutions of higher education, some, some interesting, some tragic. Um, the one that we have been riffing on for the past couple of minutes is in the New York Times, and it is about how UC Davidson is... The University of California, Davis. Okay, yes, University of California, Davis, has introduced um, this adversity score, and adversity is specifically in reference to a bunch of different plot points from your life, I guess, where it's like if you came from a certain zip code where there's like a disproportionate percentage of people who live in poverty, um, and if your parents are not together, and if your parents don't make a certain amount of money, and if your parents have like, like did not attend college, and so on and so forth. Basically, they try to paint a portrait of a person who is less kind of prepared, less advantaged when it comes to getting into medical school. And then they give that person a sort of a handicap, like um, like in golf, I guess. I don't play golf, but this is how I imagine that it works. Um, where if you score a certain number of points adversity-wise, it can make up for your lack of points on something like, say, the MCAT. Um mm-hmm. So this, because it is a medical school, I think particularly this inspired a lot of discussion um, on the internet about whether it is a good idea to be admitting people into like a medical career path based on how much they've struggled and how much they've suffered as opposed to purely based on their apparent aptitude for the course material. This is true. This this did come up once or twice <laughs> in reference to this article. So, yeah, I mean, a million things about this, not least that if you want to click on the link to this specific New York Times article, trigger warning, it shows a frog being dissected, which I was a bit taken aback by. I, was not I thought you were going to say that. T- trigger warning, it shows a diverse class of medical students. <laughs> they look like a Benetton ad. They look amazing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so when I when I got past the frog, I have I I felt a little bit um, queasy from that, but I'm not applying to be a frog dissector, so it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, so this has been something that has been going on in one way or another for a while, which is that um, the Supreme Court in Backey, I believe it was, am I mispronouncing it? Whatever, ages ago, ages ago, the Supre- like decades ago, the Supreme Court 
said the U.S. Supreme Court, I should say, um, said that you can't do quotas. If you want to have a racially diverse class, you have to say that you're doing it for the positive goal of racial diversity. You can't be doing like reparations via numbers. You have to sort of create this like this positive value of diversity through like holistic admissions, figuring out about the whole candidate, these more complicated ways of figuring these things out. And a lot of this also has been this idea of like, showing, demonstrating grit, demonstrating obstacles overcome. The problem with this is that the more you, um, (laughs) like, it's an interesting idea, but, um, and I have truly been like arguing this in writing for like, I want to, if not decades, at least a decade, because this is driving me nuts that it's getting worse. But anyway, you now have to, and not, not now as in since this recent Supreme Court case, but I mean, like for decades, you've had to kind of paints this sort of like decorative not decorative what's the word like an elaborate picture of each person who's applying for something and what their life has been so you get this kind of like pretense that schools can know this right Mm -hmm. and that and then there's this but what happens though is there's this thing like with the obstacles overcome where paradoxically, the more you have, the more you're able to demonstrate on an application that you have overcome obstacles. So you have the famous thing, or should be famous, where a rich child has, or their parents more accurately, hire a tutor to write the essay about their obstacles overcome, and it's beautiful, and it's beautifully written, and it gets at, it hits all the right notes, whereas the child who's actually dealing with some kind of severe adversity does not have a tutor writing their essay, maybe doesn't even turn in their application on time, does not even get to go to any college, perhaps. Anyway, part of the ramble, but that's the thing. And that seems, I'm just trying to say that I think that's the context that this comes out of. The stakes, however, are different when it's a, you know, area studies course versus um, your life is on the line. Who do you want to be your doctor? Yeah, I think that this was part of why this inspired so much discussion that like when it comes to this question of how we go about kind of minting members of the elite classes or the elite professions of which medicine is one people tend to get a little bit anxious when they imagine like a less qualified person medicine specifically i would say that i don't think people would have this if it were law i mean maybe law but definitely medicine it's like the image of somebody standing over you with a scalpel in hand who like (laughs) was less qualified to be there but suffered more um that said i do think that like medical school is obviously one bar to clear um by the time you've gone through it and gone through all of the residency and accreditation that it requires to like actually become a doctor i think probably like you deserve to be there um you you don't have to worry that you're being cut into by somebody who was like would have been a janitor if only you know mm-hmm. um but at the same time i think that one of the reasons this sparks so much discussion is because people understand that what they're seeing is not limited exclusively to medical school admissions it's also reflective of a kind of a broader devaluation of what we think of as merit within the culture where the idea of who deserves to be in an elite profession uh, whether that is an artistic pursuit or whether it's something like medicine or law has started to shift so that we don't really focus quite so much on aptitude anymore, especially as like the idea of diversity has become sort of at the forefront of these things. There's a lot of focus on the idea that like you deserve to be or you deserve the opportunity to to pursue this career by virtue of either being member of um a category like an identity category that is perceived as having been oppressed um, or that you've suffered hardship in your life it's a kind of explicitly moral framework and I think it makes people a little bit antsy well I think it makes people antsy but not only for the reason one might imagine so it's not so much even just that like the best people aren't going to get the job anymore or whatever like that. I don't think it's even that so much as the fact that when you get rid of more quantitative ways of assessing people in the name of helping the underprivileged, who ends up helping? Well, historically, the privileged, right? Like what ends up happening is once you make things sort of fuzzy and subjective, 
the people who have, you know, like a posh family background find a way, they figure something out, and they still do just fine, if not better, than they did in this sort of, like, cold, hard, here's your score, (laughs) and tells you if you get in or not systems, right? So you keep seeing this pattern, and this is hardly new. Um, This has been going on for, like, so long, and it's just going to get so much worse now um, with these new workarounds to affirmative action. But basically, there will be some system in place, like the SAT, just to do like the most obvious one, get rid of the SAT and scrap that in favor of personal essays, what happens? Do you get suddenly diversity? No, you get, you know, people whose tutors wrote their personal essay. And you have, and there's a reason for this. And it's not just that like life is, and it's not that people are mean, it's that these schools want, you know, like a lot of, they need to, to run the way they do. And they want, they tuition, right? You know, donors, all of this, they don't actually, and that's the whole paradox with this, is that these schools want to show that they're um, correcting historic wrongs and bringing about equity and all of this, but they also charge these tremendous amounts of money. And, and it's hard to figure out, like, there are obviously ways of going to them that do not involve spending tremendous amount of money, amounts of money, but it's hard to figure it all out. And a lot of people don't even try because they wouldn't know where to begin. Um, and yeah, so you have to show that you've overcome obstacles. But if you actually are dealing with tremendous obstacles, you're not there to begin with. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's an interesting point about the schools. They, they want to look one way and they want to operate in basically the diametrically opposite way. Yes, this is like, this is what's been driving me nuts for truly years about these personal essays for college admissions, that the whole point is to not come across as privileged in them. But to actually go to the school, you have to be privileged because you have to pay for it. So how does that all work? And it's like this silly dance you have to do of like pretending to, you have to frame yourself in a certain way where you don't seem like a brat but you have to have the family income of a brat to go. So yeah, it's it's tricky. The other thing I thought was very interesting about the um, UC Davis scoring system in particular was the part where they mentioned that um, the children of doctors are disproportionately likely to pursue a medical career themselves. I thought they were disproportionately likely to be podcasters. <laughs> That's the two of us. Um, are, is, is your dad disappointed in you? <laughs> no doubt. Uh, mine, mine told me not to become a doctor. I think he knew that I liked to sleep. So, yes. Um, but, but this is interesting. Yeah, that like you know the children of doctors disproportionately do pursue a medical career, and. I should say it didn't surprise me that that is the case because I think that's kind of often a thing that you have kind of the family business, right? Um, But what did kind of strike me was how much hand-wringing was uh, being done about that fact within these medical schools. They're trying to kind of explicitly prevent the children of doctors from getting in it was like it was like we don't want them here and um as a result the if you were the child of a doctor automatically your adversity score would be zero like you would be given no credit right which is to say that like I don't know like if you know if you were the child of a physician and you were inspired to pursue medicine on your own and maybe like if you were encouraged to do this by your parents you know who have like very high expectations of you unlike my parents um they you know this basically puts you at a disadvantage it's i can understand why this strikes people as unfair well can i talk about the adversity score thing a little bit because i think um what interests me about this and this is like i feel strange talking about this because this is like this used to be like my area and i've sort of forgot about it for a few years and now it's suddenly back in the news and i have to remember all the like things with this but there's Remember the like privilege walk, right? Or the privilege checklist on BuzzFeed or all of this. There's something very sort of unscientific about it because you can do a checklist of all the advantage, all your advantages and all your disadvantages, but how, is it weighted? You know what I mean? Like there's, and how is it, and different things affect different people in different ways. And it just, it's a very, I think it's one of these things where the more you try to 
do it scientifically, the less scientific it becomes. Because like, let's say you, you talk about people who were raised by a single parent. Some will have done great in life and not had a lot of adversity. And maybe this was a single parent by choice and whatever. Others, there might be a tragic backstory. You know, who knows? And it's going to be different for different people. So like, it's very hard to really say something. So that's why, like, there's just something very frustrating to me about the fact that it, it never is seemingly just a simple like household income or or just a box ticked for race even you know what I mean it's always this thing about creating this complex portrait of each person and I feel like that gives this false illusion of actually knowing who's has it had it easy and who hasn't because if you actually meet people every day of the week you would you could meet plenty of like straight white men who have it's abundantly clear upon meeting them had it more difficult than people who are not straight, not white, not men who might be standing next to them. You know what I mean? It depends. You know, there's so many things going on with actual people. But the, it's, it's, what bothers me is just this pretense of knowing who's had it more difficult, which just seems so nuts. And yet people love it. And they kind of have to because there's no because affirmative action can't be just straightforward. So if you want to have affirmative action, you get this. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it does produce this kind of insidious myth that you can like know the complete person based on what they've managed to put into their college application. Exactly. I mean, you can't. I mean, this is like, and then I think it makes applicants for something feel worse. Like this, it's this whole, it's very much like therapy speak avant la lettre, you know, like mm-hmm. this whole idea that people will feel better if they were rejected from a school that got to know them personally, like another person can get to know a person and decided that they suck. Yes. And then they'll feel better because the school was mindful and gentle and this and that. And we're going to talk more about this later. But um, yeah, I think this idea that that the school, like I would much rather be rejected from a place based on just like some crude facts about that that an application could provide, you know, rather than this idea that like, the school got to know me and was like, Phoebe, you ramble too much on podcasts. We're not taking you to be um, a pre-med or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I think it's a little late for that. But you see what I'm saying? Like, that's that's the thing that gets to me about this because it's this, it's that it's personal, but it's also this pretense of knowing something that a school cannot know. You cannot know who's had it more difficult than who else. You can only guess. And that's why I would rather it just be like, either some kind of thing to do with income, something to do with race and income, whatever, and just have some kind of objective thing that you know, and you're not claiming to know more than that. You're not claiming to know that the person who's rich and white didn't suffer a lot for some idiosyncratic reason, because you just don't know it. Right. Yeah. I mean, as I understand it, if they were to institute something like a quota system but make it based on you know class or or income and not on race um, they would still be disproportionately helping students who were of color because of the way that like wealth distribution is at least in the United States but the other thing this made me think of as you were talking about like the therapy speak thing I think this is like the academic version of the um, bring your whole self to work Movement. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's everything is getting so... Oh, who's the writer who writes about this stuff? It might be Christopher Lash. Um, and when I say writes, I mean wrote because I think he's dead. But yeah, there's this, this infiltration of this sort of like feelings-oriented squishy language and like squishy, like, I don't know, kind of sentiment into everything. And it's not actually having the intended impact i think it's making everybody feel worse correct i whenever i encounter this type of language it always makes me feel like i'm being talked to like i'm a disobedient child or or an idiot and i just always react like what and i just i feel like i'm often a little blunt when i hear this sort of thing because but people i think have been told in recent years that that's the way you have to communicate to be nice and it's just very weird i don't know it's a weird thing but yeah, I mean, the, oh, should we? 
Before we segue, um, I think we should use our indoor voices. And <laughs> sorry, I'm, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna gentle parent this podcast. Um, oh my to, goodness! To briefly say, uh, we are Feminine Chaos. We're a podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, you can join us on Substack at femchaospod.substack.com. For five dollars a month, you will receive access to premium episodes just for our paid subscribers, as well as our back catalog. You also get early access to public episodes and you get access to our community of commenters we have open threads we do amas um it's a good time and having said that as fast as i possibly could no no that's good it's our back catalog of private episodes oh yeah back catalog of all all the episodes you get you get all the episodes episodes. so you'll get yes you could possibly listen to them all even you could even do more than five dollars if you want you know, like if it, the guy in the Doc Martin, if it's your thing to, no, just kidding, to send <laughs> us a billion dollars. If that's your kink. If that's your kink, you know, who's to say no? All will provide our podcasts, but, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, did you read this thing by um, Default Friend slash Catherine D about how, oh, something about trad women influencers or something who aren't actually trad, but they're like, trying to be pick me's or something. some complicated very online thing but she had some line in the piece about how like if you're a beautiful woman you can kind of make your name on instagram and if you're not you can have a podcast or something it's like ah oh yes i did see that and i felt personally attacked thank you me too i mean i also felt a little old i wanted to be like you know give me a break like maybe maybe 22 year old me could have done something on instagram although um not according to William DeRacevitz. But anyway, that's another topic. That's another article that we're not going to talk about now. Catherine D was on the podcast while you were gone. She was a right, guest. Right, right. Oh. We talked about Tumblr. She knows a lot about Tumblr. She's got her finger on the pulse. She does have her finger on the pulse. Um, so which, which of the many, many other academia things should we talk about? Because I kind of want to start. I think the segue might be the DEI skeptical professor because that's kind of related. I don't know. Yes. So do we want to talk about the DEI skeptical professor, or do we want to talk about the whiteness studies skeptical student? The problem is we have a few stories that basically you have to simultaneously know what all of them are to understand what we're talking about. So maybe I'll try to like speed summarize a few of them. Yeah, explain what is in the water right now, because clearly something is. Yes, so something is definitely in the water. So... Um, Yoel Inbar, who's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto, um, Toronto, the city where I live, although I do not know him personally, I've only read about all this. He is still a professor at the University of Toronto. He is not, however, going to be a professor at UCLA because, da, 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 well, you'll, we'll see. Um, he was up for a partner hire role, which means that his partner does have a job offer from UCLA and UCLA was offering him, maybe, was maybe going to offer him a job so that he could move with her, but did not end up doing so possibly because, this is not 100% clear, a bunch of students wrote an angry letter saying that he had been unfriendly to diversity on a podcast in 2018, and I think of all the things I myself had probably said on a podcast in 2018 that are probably far more out there than anything that this man said in a podcast in 2018. But in any case, saying that he doesn't think diversity statements help further the goal of diversity, basically. I mean, not hiring him is hardly harsh enough. They should have just taken him out back and shot him. No, I think they should have done to him, like, oh, I was going to say that Doc Martin episode, but just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> um, the things that I've said in podcasts, oh boy. Um I'm always joking, but that would probably not. I'm sure the grad students or whatever of UCLA would not see it that way. And but this is sad. Wait, so he was supposed to go and and be hired by UCLA because his um his his wife or his girlfriend was going. But do they have to break up now because he can't go? <laughs> I mean, that's a little bit like. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that's the Okay, maybe I'm not maybe I'm not asking the right questions here. I don't think the law has a stance on this. Oh my gosh. Oh wait, are you going Oh wait a second. Wait a second. Is it going to be or is it going to have to be like um oh, the the what's it, De Blasio? I know we're not talking about that in this episode. We're not talking about that. Okay, so 
<laughs> I just have to say that my mother informed me that there are comments to the article and I had not yet seen them. And then I saw, I clicked on it, I saw there's 600 something comments and I'm like saving this for when I have time at some point. This is the article about Bill de Blasio and Charlene McRae, Charlene McRae breaking up, but they're not breaking up. They're staying together. They're staying in the same house, but they're going to date other people. Headline that should have been some of my best ex-wives or lesbians. <laughs> by by Bill de Blasio because she identified and possibly still identifies as a lesbian but you know exceptions must be made for Bill de Blasio apparently well but I'm concerned about Yol Inbar and his happiness I I could see that and I am too although I think um this is pretty common in academia when both people want to pursue academic careers and a couple when both people and a couple want to pursue academic careers you kind of do end up with this and I know people who are like raising young children like this and it's it's not a life I would want but I understand how it happens because if you really want to do this it's really really hard and like so people sort of knock the partner hire like well that's not fair you know it's who this person's like sleeping with gets them a job well this is true but like if you don't have this system in place you like basically have two people living in different parts of the world trying to be a couple sometimes with children and it's yeah it's not um Anyway, that's a side note about academia. But the point is that he did not actually oppose diversity. He just like opposed this workaround. So that was what struck me so much about this story was that the thing that these students are like dying on the hill to, you know, defend of this diversity statements and that they conflate with like being pro-diversity is this weird workaround because the Supreme Court doesn't allow quotas, you know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, um, yeah, and it just seemed it's just such an upsetting story. And I feel like it's an upsetting story, even if you like separate it out from like what maybe there was something else going on. I don't know. I'm not UCLA. Right. And in all of these cases, there's always the possibility that there's more going on than is obvious from media coverage of it. But like, ugh, it's just I, I don't like it. I don't like it. But does that mean? Okay, so then the question is, so when I say about stuff like this, that I don't like it, I get accused of (laughs) supporting going into classrooms and attacking people with a knife. And for the record, let me just say, not a fan, not I do not think people should go into classrooms and stab people. And even more than that, I used to teach college students and used to be very afraid of things like this happening because students students be angry (laughs) no no, i don't know how to say this but like when i was teaching french this was um when i was at nyu i was a grad student also teaching french that was like part of how i was paying for it you know um there was some student who was once upset about like a very high but not high enough score on some assignment who like lived in my neighborhood and would like give me the stink eye on the subway. And I was always convinced like he's going to come into this class and it's going to be bad. Oh man. You don't really think about French as a, a subject that would inspire like a murderous rage, but I guess, you know, if you get the wrong kind of person, the next thing you know, you're, you're on the floor, they're standing over you with a knife and they're like, conjugate this mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is you're dealing with so many, like hundreds of, if not thousands of, people at an age where you know people can be a little bit you know (laughs) mass murderous at times and um yeah you know it, it just takes one right and I think this is something that yeah every person who teaches probably on some level fears if they think about it now I don't mean like that you're living in fear at every moment I don't mean one of these things like oh to be a woman is to be scared to go out past six o'clock at night I don't mean like that but I mean it's when incidents arise where somebody clearly despises you and you're teaching their cl- the class, it can be concerning. So what happened in Canada, so that gets us to our next story, is in Canada proper, not in terms of somebody applying to leave Canada, why anybody would want to leave Toronto for Los Angeles, I cannot begin to imagine, by the way. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely in Toronto, especially in the winter. Like, I can't imagine it being like March and still snowing and April and still snowing and thinking that LA might be preferable. Like I have invented a partner in LA to be partner hired (laughs) into LA to just work for the Canadian Jewish news of Los Angeles. Um, But it, Waterloo, the University of Waterloo, I believe it is, um, uh, possibly a former student, I'm not sure, a 24 year old man came in um, 
and into a what turned out to be a gender studies class, but he this he did not happen upon it. So this wasn't like that Pulse nightclub shooting where somebody just wanted to shoot a lot of people and happened to go to a gay club in which to do it. No, no, he checked that it was a gender studies class and then stabbed the professor and a couple students and basically went around in a rampage. And it sounds like a complete nightmare. Like there's a student who um, was interviewed on the news about it and it, who was in the room and it's just the most horrifying thing right I mean you know the only thing that makes it uh, I I mean if it had been a gun it would have been worse um but it was still rather bad with a knife you you found the silver lining I did find the the silver lining um no but I'm saying that it's one of these things where like it's hard to think of something worse you know I was like it's really really horrible and um what's tricky to discuss about this is then you get this thing of like is there blood on your hands if you have ever said gender studies is silly let's say and I don't even think gender studies is silly I think that it's complicated and we can maybe get into that or not depending what we talk about but um but for somebody who had let's say somebody thinks this do they have blood on their hands now and I think the nuance in this is do they think gender studies is silly or do they think gender studies is silly and professor so-and-so is teaching her gender studies seminar and room such and such and here's her email and go get her which gets to the third story. The third story, because there's so many, is that at the University of Chicago, where I went to college, so not that that's particularly relevant, except that I can kind of picture how this all played out, because I not only went to college there, but was an editor of the very opinion section where some of this all played out at the college paper. Um, the A 19-year-old college student, not in a class called The Problem of Whiteness, saw that the, there was going to be an anthropology class called The Problem of Whiteness, um, posted about it to his many, many followers. He apparently is a 19-year-old with a big Twitter following, and got the professor, who's not a professor but an adjunct, um, cyber-bullied out of teaching the class. Like, she did not then teach the class until, I guess, the next semester they did uh have it next quarter if they're still doing the quarter system um but like with guards or something it was like had to be high security and he was protected the student in his posting by the university of chicago's specific free speech code which did not end up of course protecting the people who wanted to take the problem of whiteness or teach the problem of whiteness in their speech because they couldn't go and do it so these are a few different things, right? A few different things going on that all are related, but in kind of complicated ways. Um, and if you're following us still and don't, you know that meme where the guy has all the like post-its and the strings or whatever? Oh, yeah, it's... Um, we need that. It's from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's, um, but yes, I know what you're talking about. Was that enough news stories or do you want to throw in 10 more? I think I think we could stop there. I think so too. I think so too. Um, so, I mean, the, the way to sum it up, though, in terms of, like, what are the stakes in all of this, um, is one of my grad school professors would always say, what are the stakes? And I would always feel like, I don't know, um, steak frites, steak tartare. Um, but here, the stakes are, if you are critical of academia, do you have blood on your hands if somebody either, you know, threatens to attack or does attack uh woke sounding course there's our question and i would say no i don't think that's how the world works i would also say no and so this is this has become a very boring uh point of agreement (laughs) between the two of us although okay so i'm gonna i don't know maybe i'll be maybe i'll be a little bit of a not devil's advocate on the question of whether you have blood on your hands you being the hypothetical you who um objected to gender studies classes or was critical of them. Um, But just to briefly address the question of the connection between a bunch of people being mad online about a class called the problem of whiteness and one person going into a gender studies class to commit a stabbing. Anybody die? Is everyone okay, by the way? Uh, It sounds like some injuries. I I don't think anybody died. Okay, that's good. That's good. I'm not sure, like, when we talk about these things, like, in the same breath, I understand why we do, and yet I'm not necessarily sure that we should. 
I'm not sure that they're necessarily linked. Can I make the case for what the link is? And it's a limited link. It's not infinite. But basically, it becomes this cascading thing, right? And it's hard to really... The kid, the kid, the young man, the man, the 19-year-old elderly man um, who posted this professor is publicly available, but not otherwise, but this person's not like a public figure email address and got all of his supporters to go bother her, did not say to threaten her. He did, however, post that it had been a victory when the class was canceled. Some of the people angry at the professor sent her violent messages. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, enough so that when they actually did hold, that they had to cancel the class entirely, first and then when they did reschedule it for another term had to beef up security for it so there must have been some sort of credible threat of violence here that does not that's not obviously the same as that actually being violence but it's certainly different from people saying your class is bullshit i guess i'm curious about what maybe i'm too skeptical about this and i you know want to like acknowledge up front that I might be. Um, But I wonder how much there was, in fact, a credible threat of violence as versus how much there was a desire to show that they were, A, putting this class on, B, standing by and supporting the teacher who had herself invoked like a fear for her life. Um, Because once you do that, once you do that publicly, I think that you know, the school is in a position where they kind of have to make a show of support of of a particular type. Oh, I could speak to this. And I think you might be being a little too cynical because so I had something like this happen when I was teaching. Um, when I was teaching, this was at actually at the University of Toronto, I was teaching like as an adjunct French classes. And um, I wrote an article for the New Republic, this was in 2015, about guns and that I thought they should be banned. Um, and People were not just mad at me online to the point that I had to like, you know, go offline for a bit because it was too much of a barrage of like truly like pretty, you know, I mean, constantly they were all violent. Like this is a sea of really like, I'm going to come for you with a gun type things, Mm -hmm. but also emailing my like everybody in my department individually look going to the trouble to look up who was like in the French department, emailing everybody individually, you know, whatever, whatever it was, they were like, I mean, this was not, like, vague. You know what I mean? Like, I was being threatened, <laughs> like, to the point that it was scary for me to, like, go to work. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. And I think, and I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think if something like this was happening to this professor, which it kind of might, just having had a similar experience, that was what my mind went to, was probably something like that. I could see this being, like, it, it's not obviously the same as somebody actually coming in with a knife, but it's, like... It's not a totally out there thing to beef up security. Yeah, no, I don't think it is. I'm just I'm just trying to draw the connection between a person making a violent threat and that violent threat actually being representative of real intent to show up and do harm. Because like violent threats are a dime a dozen and I'm really really sorry that that happened to you and I'm really sorry that that happened, you know, to this woman. I mean, nobody deserves that. But what I'm trying to get well, but at... But what are you supposed to do, though, I guess, in a case like that? That's a thing where it's... No, no, no. I, I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have beefed up security. I'm saying that there is the scenario in which a violent threat is made and a person is fearful, legitimately, with good reason, and they beef up security. And then there is a situation in which a person actually comes into a classroom with a weapon and starts indiscriminately, you know, trying to murder people. And... I, I'm curious how often, and I, I don't know this off the top of my head, but I'm curious how often that person who's in the classroom, who's actually in the classroom with the weapon, is the same person who announced ahead of time that they wanted to do this. Sure. I think this is, I, 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 I'm with you to a point on this, and I think that it's not common to, for somebody to come into a classroom and attack people for political reasons. I think it's common for people to do that unfortunately, um, for other reasons, just because they're angry and violent and that's why there are all these school shootings and so forth, um, especially in the States. But I don't think that the issue here is so much that it's likely that this professor at the University of Chicago or this lecturer or whatever it was going to be 
attacked in class. Rather, I think what's the common ground as I see it, um, and this is what I wrote about, is this stifling of speech. It stifles speech if you believe if there's a credible threat of violence to your class. It stifles the speech of giving that class. Mm-hmm. Now, you get this tricky situation where there's also stifled speech within <laughs> these sort of, for lack of a better term, hyper-woke type area classes often, where you cannot go to this class and have a contrarian or heterodox or conservative or whatever you want to call it view and express it. So that is also a type of stifling of speech. But I feel like there's this weird thing now where if you say that, if you say that that exists, people are like, well, so you're in favor of going into a gender studies class and massacring people. And it's like, no, that's not the thing. But the the way I, I guess what I'm getting at, though, in terms of the common ground is like the if any sort of either physical attack or indeed like credible threat of physical attack on a classroom stifles speech. What I don't think stifles speech, and this is where I guess I get into trouble with other people, is like I don't think that there's some law according to which you can only comment on what's happening in a university if you're enrolled in that university or otherwise or teaching at it. I think that that's not just like a sort of a snobbish way to look at it, but just like a kind of misguided one, because like either it matters what's happening at universities and this is like where knowledge is coming from or it doesn't. And if it does matter, then the public should care, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't like the idea that if unless you've taken... 50 gender study seminars or taught them you can't have a thought about it. I mean, I've never even taken gender studies myself. I've read a lot of academic gender studies on my own, but I have not. Um, Just for fun before ever... bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for various research reasons, we can get into another time. But yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, I find this whole topic like so frustrating because I feel like I don't have a team on this, I, apart from that I think people should be allowed to talk about maximally as much as possible and investigate as much as possible, and that I don't like it when somebody is told that they can't express a heterodox view in a class, and I also don't like it when somebody is under a violent threat, and I don't mean to equate those two either. I think a violent threat is certainly worse, um, and a, actual violence is worse than that. I also think you should be allowed to talk about all of these things without it being like, ah, but you're for this, so that means this. And it's like, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, nuance is always a good thing. The thing that I'm sort of, that I keep thinking about is the question of when a university chooses to be brave and to stand for speech, which in which in this case, the University of Chicago did, you know, not just in the form of not, um, you know, shutting down this kid who or well 19 year old whatever who was critical of um you know publicly critical of this class but also in staging the class you know like obviously it took a semester for them to get it together so it was delayed but the show did go on and I think that's very interesting because I think that in the cases where you have a controversy of this type surrounding a professor's remarks or perceived stance, um, and I guess, you know, what happened at, what's that man's name, Yoel Imbar, what happened with him um, at UCLA is maybe a sort of an example of this, that there's a choice to capitulate more often there when the criticism is coming from like you know from the progressive side and so that of course also ends up chilling speech I guess that what I'm what I'm sort of circling here in a very roundabout way is um you know when when do people choose to be brave and to stand for speech as versus when do they basically allow for the suppression of speech not even out of the threat of violence but because it's just too annoying to try to stand up for it yeah it's complicated i mean and some of this is like the university of chicago being a kind of strange place i mean it's become since like more recently than when i was there so i graduated in 2005 from college and more recently it's just become like a hard to get into college, sort of somewhat interchangeable with other hard to get into colleges. It was not so hard to get into when I went. Um, I think though, it may still have a bit of this culture of like, I mean, this has like, it's known for these kind of like, um, more like libertarian economics and so forth. And I think it is more like a place that does this. I think 
if this had been Oberlin, maybe it would be different. You know what I mean? Like, I think different schools have different kind of historical political bents, maybe? Is that a possibility? I mean, I think, I don't know that it's possible to generalize about um, all of this. And there's also the question of like, if somebody already works somewhere, I guess, versus if they don't yet, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about like all of these instances um, that happened this year where a professor showed like an image, a historic image of Muhammad. Oh, right. Yes. And and was fired for it, um, you know, because of the alleged harm done by showing this image to, you know, members of an oppressed community. I don't know. So like, this is, uh, okay, I'm trying to think about how to put this. I want to make very clear that I don't support sending death threats to people. I definitely, definitely do not support getting actually violent inside a classroom. I think that, you know, there is a a very bright line when it comes to criticism, even caustic and aggressive criticism, um, where you cross over into legitimate threats and uh, or even into like ad hominem, you know, where you just it's it's not that hard to avoid doing that. So, okay, with that said, here is what I want to say about this class. I think when you name your class the problem of whiteness, there is an intention to be provocative. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Or, okay, go on. But then I have a a caveat to this. Go on. Okay. So what I am getting at is that I think that also, despite the fact that the intent is to be provocative, the assumption when it comes to stuff like this for several years now has been that if people are provoked, they won't say anything. They're not going to speak up. They're not going to risk sticking their necks out. I think that there's been a lot of sort of advantage taking of the tendency, especially in certain kind of like progressive dominated spaces, including college campuses, um, to take advantage of, of the tendency for people to like self-flagellate and um, kind of prostrate themselves before whoever it is that's saying essentially that like it's bad to be white. Nobody wants to push back against that because then you'll be accused of being fragile and being racist. And um, that this reminds me a lot actually of the very first thing we ever talked about on Feminine Chaos, which was the book White Fragility, where um, Robin D'Angelo posited that because white people reacted badly to being like negatively stereotyped on the basis of their race, that this meant they were uniquely fragile, that this was like a unique character flaw amongst people of this particular type. That was like a ubiquitous idea for a long time, but I think that people are starting to get a little bit tired of it. And I think that to name a class the problem of whiteness and to not anticipate really a lot of pushback, a lot of angry pushback reflects like a state of affairs that was in existence for, I think, several years, but is starting to erode a little bit. Okay, so I think I think you almost have it. I think that's almost it, but I have to just like, I put my head into like back when I was in grad school and how it would go and what I would think and what the instructor would probably think if such a class was around. My sense from those environments is not that somebody is saying nobody would dare object, but they literally can, they are in such a bubble that they genuinely do not imagine a person who would find this troubling. They have been in seminars that talked about the problem of whiteness, that deconstructed whiteness, blah, blah, blah. They do not see the world around them where that would be considered not good. It is not, it, they are, it is not visible. They are in too much of a bubble. And they don't imagine how it would look on the outside because they're not thinking about the outside. They are neck deep in this type of theory that's what people are talking about. It's not just that everybody's a Democrat. No, it's like everybody is neck deep in that type of, of worldview. And they've been doing this for so many years and only talking with people who, or at least only talking about this type of thing with people who are in that area, that they, they like, it's not that I think they're being necessarily knowingly provocative at all. I think this is just like, This is how people in that sort of field talk about things. And I think what's happened, and this has happened also with like campus newspapers now being online, everything that happens is now visible 
and not just with campuses, any arena of human life, you know, people get into an argument at a in diner and it, it goes viral. You know what I mean? Like everything can be seen by everybody. And I think something that <laughs> wouldn't be questioned within academia is now being plenty questioned with that, like from the outside. And I think that that's kind of <laughs> a tricky thing because on the one hand, I don't think that this is a class from the description of it that's saying that it's bad to be white. I don't think that's the point of it. It's not a class saying white people are bad. That's not really the point. It's about like how whiteness is defined, how people have defined whiteness, whatever. However, it also like there is an undercurrent of like an assumption of, you know, privilege hierarchies and so forth that not everybody's going to be on board with. And just in a very common sense way, to call a class the problem of whiteness looks one way to people who are neck deep in theory and another way to normal people, including even people at universities who just aren't in that area. Um, So I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that the professor or the instructor rather, since I think it does matter that she's an adjunct. um, I don't think she knew what she was doing. I really don't. My, my hunch here, I don't know. I have not talked to her personally. My hunch is that she had no idea and that her bubble was too thick to, uh, have thought of it. That's fascinating to think about. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine being so ensconced in. Like, <laughs> they are though. They are. They really are. Yeah. And I and enough. I follow this enough still from social media of people like this, and yeah, they just don't know. That's interesting. I mean, just because like to me when I look at you know academics who engage in this kind of language uh, you know who are obviously neck deep in theory of this type on Twitter it seems like part of their lifeblood if you will is knowing that this stuff is upsetting or offensive to normal people um, that like you know it, it kind of gives them life to to feel as though they're triggering the cons or whatever I think there are a few people who are very active on Twitter who might fit that. But I think if you're talking about like a typical, you know, person in academia who isn't super active on social media, they just don't know. I think they just don't know. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it's just that's what's I think like that. That was just like my gut feeling about the story is that this is somebody who just plain did not imagine a wider world and that was her downfall. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not that she had it coming in terms of violent threats or anything like that, obviously not. I just mean that I, the fact that she would be so surprised by this, it, it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around because I'm somebody who whenever I was teaching, not that I was ever teaching in that sort of area, but like I always had this other foot in the sort of opinion journalism slash social media realm, like the discourse and all of this. But a lot of people like this don't. They're reading academic papers in their area you know what I mean like they're not they're not following the discourse they don't know what people are talking about oh. you know it's interesting so what this ultimately sounds like what you're saying is that this is a problem of, of context collapse and yes exactly that... that's thank you for being more succinct about it yes context collapse that's the, yeah. that's the expression yeah which is of course the source of so many of these viral outrages where you know somebody says something either like in a public post or in a classroom or like with a group of friends where they imagine that their audience is a certain narrow group of people who like who will get what they're saying but then when that comment begins to spread outside of that circle people just assign all other different kinds of meaning to it and everything goes to shit yeah I mean it's it's frustrating because I do think that like so to just take it back to gender studies it's not all bullshit some of it's bullshit and I think like to talk about gender like the way we do on this podcast to some of it some of that owes something to academic gender studies. Some of it really challenges what's done in academic gender studies. And that's why I err on the side of like, let them do the academic gender studies, let the outside world talk about it. Um, The more knowledge, the better all around. And I just, I don't know, this really, I, I guess what I just keep being so frustrated by, it's not just that I personally take umbrage at, if anybody says that if I'm, you know, anything but the furthest left, on an issue that I have blood on my hands. I don't like that. Not a fan. But um, it's also just that, like, the consistent position is to be for free speech. 
and for free expression. And yes, free expression, what it means in a university context is different from what it means like in the town square. And that's a whole complicated thing um, we don't really have to get into, obviously. But like, yeah, I, I think to be in favor of free expression is like that you should be allowed to do to do the gender studies class and talk about things in the hyper woke way while you're lecturing, if that's how you talk. And also that you should be able to, you know, post online that you think that class sounds silly if you want to. That seems reasonable. I think so. I mean, I am sure I have blood on my hands for having even so much as thought about it in those terms. But, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, I have blood on my hands, but it's because I just did a murder. (laughs) You know, when I told ChatGPT I was writing a novel, I lied. So uh, now I've got to go make it look like an accident. (laughs) oh my goodness has this been feminine chaos at all this has definitely been feminine chaos thank you for joining us thank you bye bye